Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. If you're someone who is concerned about Donald Trump becoming the president of the United States again, as a lot of people are, uh, then this week really has been a real roller coaster. Just go back to the beginning of the week. We started this week with polling from The New York Times showing Donald Trump leading Joe Biden in five out of six key battleground states. And that sent a lot of people into a panic about the Democratic president's chances. But by Tuesday, things had actually changed. Voters in Ohio, Kentucky and Virginia went out to the polls and they delivered a resounding defeat to the Republican Party on many issues. Those results prove that access to abortion is still a key issue for voters more than a year after the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, which was, of course, bad news for Donald Trump, the man who is singularly responsible for overturning Roe versus Wade, so much so that he regularly boasts about it to his supporters. He owns it. He claims it. On Wednesday, Republicans held their third primary debate, the kind of thing that normally would be a big indicator of where this election is headed. But in the new surreal world that we are living in, that debate came and went without much of an impact. We learned that, you know, Tim Scott has a girlfriend and that Nikki Haley thinks that Vivek Ramaswamy is scum. But nothing, and I mean nothing the candidates did or said in that debate seems poised to dislodge Donald Trump from his position as the presumptive Republican frontrunner. Then yesterday, we got another big surprise. Senator Joe Manchin, yep, that senator from West Virginia, announcing that he would not be running for re-election and, in fact, hinted strongly at the idea that he may seek a third-party bid for the presidency. That would be a move almost certainly, that would take votes away from Joe Biden and pave a path for Donald Trump to win back the White House. So like I said, it has been a roller coaster full of ups and downs. And hanging over all of it are the very real stakes of this election. But unlike the ever oscillating politics of all of this, the stakes of this election, well, they have been clear from the get-go. They have remained remarkably consistent the beginning of the week, the Washington Post published a terrifying report about how Trump and his allies were plotting to seek revenge if given a second term in the White House. Here's how the Post described it. Quote, Trump has, hold has told advisors and friends in recent months that he wants the Justice Department to investigate one-time officials and allies who have become critical of his time in office. Trump has talked of prosecuting officials at the FBI and the Justice Department. So once again, we started this week with a report that the former president is preparing to use the Justice Department to prosecute his political foes, to do exactly what he and his allies have falsely accused Joe Biden of doing. And here we are at the end of the week, Donald Trump sitting down for an interview with Univision in which he confirmed to the world, yes, that is exactly what he intends to do. They have done something that allows the next party. I mean, if somebody, if I happen to be president and I see somebody who's doing well and beating me very badly, I say, 
go down and indict them, mostly where that would be, you know, they would be out of business. They'd be out. They'd be out of the election. That guy, the guy threatening to start throwing his enemies in jail on day one, has a very real chance of becoming president of the United States again. Look, it can be easy to dismiss things that Trump says now on the campaign trail as bluster. But he is capable of following through on his promises, like his 2016 promise to institute a Muslim ban, appoint justices who would overturn Roe versus Wade, pull out of the Paris Climate Accords, all things that Trump did in one form or another on the campaign trail and then ultimately followed through when he became president. And this time, he will not be surrounded by the same institutionalist voices who tempered his whims during the first Trump term, the so-called adults in the room. If Trump himself is to be believed, those people, those institutionalists, those adults in the room will probably be in jail or at the very least fending off prosecutions from Donald Trump's Justice Department. As the New Yorker Susan Glasser put it today, whichever individual poll you choose to believe or not, the data points overwhelmingly to Biden sitting at near historic lows in popularity and being essentially tied with Trump, a man who is running on an explicit platform of revenge, retribution and constitution and constitutional termination. Trump has said it all before. He'll say it all again. The question with one year left on the clock, who's listening? Joining me now is Susan Glasser, staff writer at The New Yorker and co-author of The Divider, and with me, former Republican Congressman Charlie Dent. It's great to have both of you with us. Um, Susan, I'll start with you and that very poignant and timely piece that you write. It's a year out, but as you said, who is actually listening? Um, You write in your piece about how the warnings about Trump are getting louder for anyone who wants to hear them. Why isn't that being reflected um, in any of these pollings we are seeing right now? Well, what's remarkable is that the polling is the warning uh, in part, and I'm, I'm, I'm really struck. I understand the need for a certain amount of self-soothing in these uh, very stressful times, right? But, uh, you know, the bottom line is it's very clear, even if you look at what the Biden campaign itself has said, they're expecting essentially a dead heat, uh, uh, almost close to tied campaign next year, and that's by their own account. It's truly remarkable when you consider all the things uh, that Trump has already done, not least of them January 6th, uh, a man facing four criminal indictments, and yet the incumbent president in the White House is expecting uh, a race that would be essentially a dead heat with him. And I'm just struck by the the a couple things, the escalating extremism of Trump's rhetoric and his what he's saying he's going to do in a second term. It's very different than what you heard from Trump on the campaign trail in 2016. Uh, and instead of focusing on, you know, essentially a, a program for for the country, he's very consumed by personal grievance, revenge. Uh, and, uh, you know, it really wasn't the Univision interview wasn't the first time that Donald Trump has threatened to lock up his opponents and to essentially uh, take the the system of justice and, and twist it to his own personal ends. Uh, he does have an attack list and certainly people like John Kelly, uh, Mark Milley, Bill Barr, you showed their pictures. They're on the list. They're yeah. on the list. 
And it's such a good point that you bring up about the fact that he'll, he will seep something into the conversation and then just slowly say it again and again and again until we all become numb to it, uh, which we certainly can't afford because he is saying the most dangerous and most extreme things uh, out loud. And that, Charlie, is going to put the Republicans in a very difficult position because Republicans in Congress, they basically have been um, locking themselves into this idea that the weaponization of the federal government is a bad thing. That's what they have been accusing Joe Biden of doing. And now you have their front runner, their standard bearer, their, their nominee to be saying, I am going to literally weaponize the government to punish my enemies. And I'm willing to bet you're not going to hear a lot of Republicans condemn him or distance themselves from him saying it's OK to weaponize the government against his opponents. Uh, probably not, but I, I know there are a number of Republican members of the House, especially, who would be very concerned about a Trump candidacy as the nominee because they know he is a disaster for them in these uh, these marginal swing districts. About uh, 17 Republicans represent districts that Joe Biden won. Uh, they know that Donald Trump is toxic. And so with all this extreme rhetoric that Susan has just uh, correctly pointed out, his rhetoric has become more extreme, more incendiary, more, more, more inflammatory. This is not helping. You combine that with the unpopularity of the abortion position that many Republicans have adopted over the years, uh, and they know they have trouble. Uh, I think, you know, you talked a lot about polls, too. But there's one poll that we should talk about, at least one number. I see about two-thirds of voters <clears throat> don't want Joe Biden or Donald Trump. They think one is too old and one is too crazy. And based on that New York Times poll that we saw uh, last week, crazy was beating old. Now, I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case in a year from now, but still there is a problem with the Biden candidacy. He is perceived by the public as a very weak incumbent. A generic Democrat in many of these polls beats Trump uh, by about 10 points. So I think there's a lot that that both sides need to look at in terms of uh, their, their, their leading candidates, because the ground is so ripe, so fertile right now for these independent movements. You know, you've got RFK Jr. out there, Cornell West, no, no labels is obviously trying to secure ballot access for a more centrist candidacy. And with, of course, with Joe Manchin making his announcement yesterday. So this is a very unsettled political terrain right now. Yeah, very unsettled, um, uh, Susan. And you know, Joe Biden was asked about the polls, uh, the ones showing him behind. He responded by saying, don't focus on just these two. He's leading in eight other polls. Do you think these polls are a genuine cause of concern? And are you skeptical of the narrative that Tuesday's elections should make Democrats feel um, complacent or sanguine? Explain why and what you think the public and the White House, Susan, should be doing right now. Yeah, well, first of all, nobody can be complacent uh, at, a, at a moment in time when our country is so divided and evenly so, whether you're Republican or Democrat, it seems to me uh, uh, complacency is out of order. As far as the polls go, I think, again, look at the the aggregate of the data is very clear that uh, Biden, uh, by by almost any indicator, has been at his near historic lows in terms of presidential popularity. The only president, in fact, since modern polling began, who has been as consistently un popular with the American public is Donald Trump. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, the bottom line is whether it's 39 percent is his approval rating or in the low 40s. This is extremely low for a president seeking reelection. My view of the polls is that they are reflecting Democrats, uh, as Charlie put it, uh, sending a message to Joe Biden that they're not happy with this option. Democrats and independent voters. Remember that Republican voters were already very strongly against Donald Trump. It's not that their views have changed. And that's why Biden isn't doing well in the polls. This is a concern uh, among voters in his own party. And it's the lack of enthusiasm that they have, or perhaps the concerns. I saw that James Carville, uh, you know, the legendary Democratic political consultant was asked the other day about these polls. And what did they indicate? And he said, well, it's simple. He's too old. That's what it reflects. Right. It's that the voters think that he's too old. It's not complicated. We're overthinking it. Of course, the White House is going to present its spin here. But the bottom line is uh, this is a very, very nerve wracking position to be in uh, if you're a Democrat. The idea that Biden, with all the things that he's accomplished uh, in his in his few years in office, would be locked in a dead heat with Donald Trump yeah. is it's, it's pretty extraordinary. So to that point, Charlie, um, on the flip side, it seems that Republicans are vulnerable on the issue of abortion because it seems that issue alone is mobilizing Democratic voters um, across the board and even in states that uh, one would think would normally be um, in support of uh, anti-choice movements in red states like Kansas, Kentucky and Ohio. That has not been the case. They have mobilized to ensure the right of women having a choice. Should Democrats be using this time before the election to try and tie Trump and the party to those extremist wings and views of the party? Well, if I were the Democrats, I would certainly use the abortion issue in areas where it makes sense. And, and in those suburban swing districts in New York and elsewhere, uh, I believe the abortion issue will resonate. Now, maybe not as much in New York, perhaps, because, you know, the, the law in New York is pretty clear that the law is not going to change up there. So abortion rights are safe. But nevertheless, this is a real vulnerability for Republicans. I've been saying this for some time, ever since uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned post-Obs, uh, you know, these Republicans, Republicans and their abortion policies and positions and votes that they've taken over the years will now have consequences. And now they are in a completely defensive position. They really don't have a clear plan as how they would like to proceed. And frankly, the party needs to moderate on the issue. I was the last member of the uh, the House, uh, the last Republican member of the House who voted not to defund Planned Parenthood and voted against a 20-week abortion ban. I was the only one. And, you know, I would get criticized from some of my colleagues saying, boy, you're really out of step with the conference. And I said, yeah, but not with my district of the country. Mm. And, and I think Republicans are discovering that they're out of step with the country. I mean, look at what Glenn Youngkin just did, going around the state talking about a 15-week abortion ban. What wasn't he or the others hearing that a lot of these voters don't want to talk about bans at all, six right. weeks, 15 weeks, 20 weeks. This is a problem for the party. And Biden is spending too much time, I think, talking about Bidenomics. Hey, inflation's high. Interest rates are high. Grocery people, people are not happy with the economy and Biden's handling of it. So if I were Biden, I'd pivot off that and go to where he is stronger on the abortion issue and also on the uh, right. uh, and also on the other issues that would be of, of relevance, like democracy. I mean, these are areas where they can they can score. Uh, right. They can score some points. I know we never said years ago, talk about abortion. I never thought there was a whole lot of winning. But now one side can win. Yeah, a historic uh, race that we're going to see unfold between if we assume that Donald Trump becomes the nominee between a sitting president and a former president. That hasn't happened uh, in many, 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 many decades. Susan Glasser, former Republican Congressman Charlie Dent. Thank you to the both of you tonight. Greatly appreciate it, as always.
Uh, there is still much more to get to tonight. Calls for a ceasefire in Gaza have grown louder and louder right here inside the United States. Ceasefire protests have even shut down traffic in major U.S. cities. But what happened when a Florida congresswoman tried to answer those calls for a ceasefire with a vote in her state legislature? We're going to ask the congresswoman herself. But first, a Trump appointed judge who has ruled in Trump's favor previously responded Trump's request to delay his trial. I promise her response is not quite what you think. We'll tell you about that next. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Donald Trump's legal playbook relies on one key tactic, delay, delay, delay. In the past month alone, he and his lawyers have run that play in two separate courtrooms with two separate judges presiding over two separate federal criminal trials, the January 6th election interference case and the classified documents case. Now, those lawyers basically argue to one judge that she should delay her trial in order to accommodate the schedule of the other trial, which Trump's lawyers are also trying to delay. Go figure. Last week, special counsel Jack Smith's team called Trump out and the prosecutors warned the Trump appointed judge in the documents case, Eileen Cannon, not to be manipulated. Now, after all, Judge Cannon had previously indicated that she might actually consider some kind of delay. So as you can imagine, her response to Trump's delay request today came as a bit of a surprise. She actually said no, no delay trial date or at least for now. Uh, In a new ruling, the judge said that she is keeping the May 20th trial date that she set months ago, but she did leave open the option of changing that date in the future. Judge Cannon plans to revisit the trial schedule during a March hearing with Trump's legal team and prosecutors, and that could give Trump another chance to, once again, deploy his favorite tactic, delay. Joining us now is Barbara McQuaid, a former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Uh, Barbara, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for making time for us. So, you know, we've talked about this in the past. Delay, delay, delay. We see it now in the classified documents case. Basically, is this inevitable at this point? I mean, what do you how do you interpret today's uh, decision? It appears that Trump's team might not expect Judge Cannon to grant a delay. But then you had this statement released by Trump's campaign spokesperson saying, we look forward to the conference set by Judge Cannon for next March, where future scheduling matters, including a potential trial date, will be discussed. Does Trump's legal team here have reason to believe that they might get what they want from this judge? 
Well, I think so, Eamon. Of course, we don't know for sure. But as you said, no doubt the strategy for the Trump team is all about delay. If they can get this push past the election, and if uh, for some reason Donald Trump should be elected president, then he controls all the cards. He could have this both of these cases in federal court dismissed. So that is the name of the game here. Um, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, part of it is going to uh, be dictated by what happens in the election interference case, which starts in March. And so if that case takes longer, perhaps, than the parties anticipate, then a delay here might be appropriate. But I think one tell that is revealed by the judge's order is she gave a very lengthy delay in some of the interim dates. So, for example, the motion cutoff date had previously been in November, and she extended that date now to February. And, you know, once there is a motion cutoff, that means the other side gets to respond. The filing side gets to reply. The judge sets a hearing. The judge gets 30 days to decide the motion. So that's already pushing up against that trial date uh, by moving the motion cutoff date. So I, I think that's why people are looking at this order, maybe with some skepticism, that this is just the inevitable uh, delay of kicking the can down the road and that we may see further delay occur in March. So what does that tell us about how Judge Cannon is approaching this? I mean, Judge Cannon, uh, as you know, she has been previously cri been criticized for issuing decisions unreasonably favorable to Donald Trump. Would you think, based on what you were just telling me about this uh, uh, motion uh, timeline that is now set for February, how should we interpret that about how she's processing or dealing with this case? I don't think it's cause for outrage, but it does suggest that she is going to be very generous with Donald Trump in giving him the time that he wants and needs. There has been some delay in receiving discovery, uh, but, you know, a delay of a month and she gave three in, in exchange. And so that does suggest that she's going to... Uh, permit Donald Trump, you know, certainly the luxury of all the time he needs. The same is true with regard to um, an extension of the time for dealing with the Classified Information Procedures Act. Because there's classified information in this case, the judge does need to work out protocols with the parties about how they're going to handle that, which material has to be turned over, how they'll handle it in open court and other kinds of things. And that, too, has been delayed. And so it does suggest to me that she is at least very receptive to the idea of delay and of giving Donald Trump plenty of time to ensure that he is adequately prepared for trial. There was a um, there was a sentence in the recent filing, a statement in the recent filing in the special counsel's team that really stood out to me. And it, it, it's really eye opening. They write, quote, uh, Donald Trump stands alone in American history for his alleged crimes. No other president has engaged in conspiracy and obstruction to overturn valid election results and illegitimately retain power. And I think sometimes we lose sight of just the gravity of what this case is all about. How striking is it for a judge to read a statement, that kind of statement, in a court filing? Well, it's very significant. It's also legally significant, Eamon, because one of the things that Donald Trump is arguing in the election interference case is that um, he lacked fair notice that what he did was a crime. You know, due process says you have to know that something's a crime before you can be prohibited from doing it. And who knew that this was frowned upon because <laughs> no one's ever been charged with this before. Well, they said, well, because no one's ever done anything like this before. Uh, and so it was important, I think, to frame it legally, just how profoundly wrong all of these allegations are. Yeah, I was going to say on its surface, I think most Americans who believe in our democracy know the idea of overturning an election by force or some kind of conspiracy is probably not 
legal. Um, Barbara McQuaid, it's always a pleasure. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time this evening and your expertise. Thank you, Eamon. Uh, still to come tonight, the fragile collegiality among Florida lawmakers meets the buzzsaw of the Israel-Hamas war. That is straight ahead. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then, learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. As death and despair reign in the north, thousands try to flee south. A mass of humanity, clinging on to each other, dragging themselves to safety. On the left side of your screen, these are images from 1948, when after the creation of Israel, an estimated 750,000 Palestinians were forced to flee or expelled from their homes, becoming refugees. They were then ultimately neglected by the international community. On the right, similar images from inside Gaza just from this week, where an estimated 1.5 million people have been displaced from their homes, particularly in the northern Gaza Strip. And one of the cascading effects of that mass exodus in 1948 is that trauma lingers. The influx of refugees into neighboring Arab countries is at least partly why multiple conflicts between Israel and Palestinians in those countries like Jordan and Lebanon continued throughout the following decades. And now the bloody conflict between Israel and Hamas raging inside the Gaza Strip is adding to that collective and continuing trauma. Since October 7th, when Israel began its military retaliation for Hamas's attacks, the Israeli military said they have killed 60 high-ranking militants and officials. Hamas's senior military leadership for now remains operational, which begs the question, where is this going next? The Hamas-led Palestinian Ministry of Health reports over 11,000 people have been killed in Gaza, 4,500 of them children. UNICEF, just today, said that the lives of one million children hang by a thread. And using satellite imagery, the United Nations has determined that at least 45% of the housing in Gaza has been destroyed or damaged. According to the Associated Press, residents wait hours for a gallon of brackish or salty water that makes them sick. Scabies, diarrhea, respiratory infections rip through overcrowded shelters. Some families have to choose who gets to eat. Some Palestinians have even vented their anger against Hamas in scenes unimaginable just a month ago. And Israeli troops pushed deeper into Gaza City. Local residents have reported intense bombardment and military vehicles near a number of hospitals, including in and around the compound of the largest hospital in Gaza, Al-Shifa. The director of that hospital saying, quote, Israel is now launching a war on Gaza City hospitals. 
Israeli military, however, claims the hospital was hit by a misfired projectile launched by terrorist organizations. Meanwhile, at another hospital, doctors are treating the wounded aided by only flashlights in primitive conditions. What is happening now? The unimaginable devastation and loss that is now breeding the next generation of people who will suffer. If the wounds of the 1948 generation's exodus was able to ripple throughout the region, stirring conflicts in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Syria, and in elsewhere, producing decades of violence that ultimately brought us to this moment, to October 7th, and war with Hamas, then what are these images going to do for the next generation of Palestinians who are still denied their freedoms and self-determination? Meanwhile, back here in the U.S., as lawmakers grapple with how to respond to this war, fault lines are fracturing. We're going to talk to a Florida lawmaker whose expression of support for Palestinian civilians has turned into a nightmare. That is next. Do you consider this bill a bill that is sympathizing with terrorists? Representative Nixon. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I consider this a bill, a resolution that wants folks to humanize the lives that are being lost, the innocent lives that are being lost as it relates to Israelis and Palestinians. So that was Democratic Florida State Representative Angie Nixon pleading with her peers in the Florida State Legislature this week in the Florida House to pass a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Nixon introduced that resolution by condemning Hamas and calling for all Israeli hostages to be freed. She made it abundantly clear that all she was asking for in this resolution was for the Florida State House to call for Palestinian civilian lives to be valued in addition to Israeli lives. And this is the reaction she got. There is evil in this room. And we can fight them here today. If you vote for this, you're an anti-Semite. Representative Nixon's colleagues asked her how she could really know that 10,000 people had been killed in Gaza. They implied that most, if not all of those 10,000 dead were terrorists. And they made provably false claims like this one. Three weeks ago, we were told, oh, my God, if you don't let the humanitarian aid in, if you don't let the fuel in, the hospitals will be shut down. Everyone will die. It's three weeks later. They're all still open. When Representative Nixon asked how many dead Palestinians would be enough, one of her colleagues, a Republican Florida state representative, Michelle Salzman, yelled out all of them. We are at 10,000 dead Palestinians. How many will be enough? I also, one of my colleagues just said all of them. Wow. One of my colleagues said all of them. And now that representative, Salzman, has apologized, clarifying that she meant all of them being all of Hamas. Salzman also says that since that clip went viral, she has received death threats for it. Discussions about how the United States should react to what is happening inside Gaza are incredibly fraught all across the country. But it is a vital conversation, and so we must have it. Joining us now is Democratic Florida State Representative Angie Nixon. Representative Nixon, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Uh, first, 
just tell me how you were feeling in that moment. How frustrated are you by the debate that is taking place uh, and how reductive it is? Yeah, so I was even just listening to that. um, I feel as though I'm having some post-traumatic stress because it was absolutely ridiculous the fact that many of my colleagues refused to see the humanity in the Palestinians that were losing their lives over over in Gaza. And the fact that in the Florida legislature, the only reason we called a special session in regards to having resolutions to address what was happening in the Middle East is because our governor is absent and he wanted to score cheap political points because he was taking part in a Republican debate uh, that next day. It's upsetting that instead of focusing on issues like the affordability crisis in in Florida and the fact that uh, Folks can no longer afford Florida. There's a 9,000 educator shortage. Instead of focusing on that and also the fact that they're kicking off 500,000 Floridians off Medicaid, instead of addressing those issues, Mm. they they decided to address this to gain cheap political points. I'm curious to get your thoughts about how this debate is framed. As I mentioned, you condemned what Hamas did, you called for the hostages to be released, and you called for a ceasefire. What do you say to the people who say that by calling for a ceasefire, you are supporting Hamas? That is now how the conversation in this country has been framed. We even heard the former Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, say those who call for a ceasefire don't understand Hamas. Look, at the end of the day, regardless of what religion you practice or your ethnicity or your race. Everyone deserves the freedom to live healthy. Everyone deserves the freedom to live safely. And everyone deserves to to live in peace with their families. And that goes for Israelis as well as uh, Palestinians. What type of moral compass do we have when we are okay with thousands upon thousands of people, particularly babies, not even able to blow their first birthday candle out when because they're dying. Atrocities should not be met with more atrocities. And I was simply trying to humanize, humanize what was going on to the Palestinians over in Gaza. What Hamas did was wrong. They are terrorists that need to be brought to justice, period. But we cannot discount the fact that there are innocent Palestinians that are dying and the fact that many of my Republican colleagues call them terrorists. It Mm. is absurd. It is um, only going to embolden um, more hateful rhetoric and also violence in our country. Look. I had on on, August 26th, I had a white 
racist domestic terrorists come and slaughter three black people in my district. And that had a lot to do with the hateful rhetoric that Governor Ron DeSantis and many within the Republican Party in Florida, that had a lot to do with the hateful and anti-black policies and anti-black rhetoric that they pushed. Mm -hmm. Now, if we go to do anti-Palestinian rhetoric, I'm fearful of the Palestinian Americans that live in our state. It has to stop. We need to call for a ceasefire and immediate de-escalation, the release of hostages, all of it. But we cannot discount these lives that are being lost. Uh, Representative uh, Nixon, can I ask you quickly why the disconnect then? I mean, there was a Data for Progress poll from last, uh, late last month that showed 66% of voters in the United States support calling for a ceasefire. But that only 18 members of Congress at the federal level have actually signed on to a resolution to actually call for a ceasefire. Why do you think there is such a big disconnect between elected officials in this country and what the American public want? I... I... <laughs> I cannot really speak to that. I can only speak to the fact that <laughs> I care about the people and and the community. And I, I don't know if it is special interest groups and big corporations. Maybe it's that that's playing into this issue. But but look, it I was elected by the people and it does not make sense for me to be in office if I'm only saying things when it's politically expedient for me or I'm only saying things to make sure that I'm reelected. If if I'm not speaking out against atrocities, if I'm not speaking out for the voiceless, I shouldn't be in office, period. We should make sure that all who live in this country and and if you're if you're also um, in Congress, if we're talking about foreign affairs, everyone in the world deserves to live healthy, prosperous and safe, period, despite who we love, who what religion mm-hmm. we, we practice. And, you know, the people in our country want to see uh, Palestinians and Israelis uh, living peacefully. And so we should definitely, as elected officials, use our voices to call for a de-escalation and an immediate solution to address those concerns. Democratic Florida State Representative Angie Nixon, greatly appreciate your time uh, and your insights this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, we're going to check in with America's mayor. A new profile in New York Magazine says Rudy Giuliani is indicted, isolated and broke. The author of that piece joins me next. All right. So he was once America's mayor leading New York City's response to the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Uh, Experience that he would later use to mount a wildly unsuccessful presidential campaign in 2008. And before all of that, though, he was a hard charging prosecutor taking on the mafia as the U.S. attorney for the esteemed Southern District of New York. But here's the thing. Since allying himself with Donald Trump in 2016, Rudy Giuliani's descent has been nothing but swift. America's mayor has found himself on the other side of the law. In fact, Giuliani has now been indicted on 13 counts in Fulton County, Georgia, for trying to overthrow the 2020 election results in that state. He also shows up as a co-conspirator, co-conspirator one, in fact, in Jack Smith's January 6th indictment, which could lead to further charges down the line. And according to a new profile in New York magazine, Rudy now finds himself indicted, isolated 
and broke. Once the toast of New York, Rudy now spends his evenings broadcasting an hour-long internet show from his Manhattan apartment to, I guess, a couple of thousand viewers. His sole advertiser, Balance of Nature Vitamins, which the former mayor plugs in between his rants about Joe Biden and, yes, the deep state. I mean, oh my goodness, you'd go on and on and on and on. Uh, no side effects to it. Nobody gets an overdose from taking vegetables. This is very, very good for you. It, it's natural. It gives you incredibly big boost in energy you would not expect pretty much right away. Maybe two, three days. Uh, I don't know. It seemed to me right away. <laughs> uh, as David Freelander writes in his profile, Giuliani was abandoned by virtually all of his remaining allies after he spread lies about the 2020 election, found a new crew populated by members of the far right MAGA base, even uh, conversations with some of the most devoted Trumpists reveal a group who view the former mayor with a mixture of condescension and pity. His New York law license has been suspended. He has racked up an enormous amount of legal debt, and he is staring down the barrel of a 13-count criminal indictment with possibly more to come. What is next for America's mayor? Joining us now is the author of that piece, New York Magazine contributor David Friedlander. David, uh, thank you so much for being here. Incredible profile. Um, we laugh, but it's sad. We've seen American politicians fall from grace, but his has been an epic fall from grace. Um, and when you think about it, just as recently as 2016, this is a guy who was worth $100 million, but as you said, he is now indicted, isolated, and broke. I mean, operatic doesn't really seem to seem to cover it. Right. You know, I mean, this is like, I mean, he's hawking vitamins, you know, on a video blog. When he can get them in his mouth. <laughs> you, know, in, 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 you know, every evening from his apartment. I, you know, it's he reminds me, it's, he's King Lear on the Heath, right. just alone and isolated and the winds are howling around him. So when you think about what has happened with um, some of the other lawyers, uh, close Trump confidants, and I would say Giuliani was probably inner circle at one point or the other, certainly in the 2020 election. Um, you look at Jenna Ellis, uh, Kenneth Chesbro. What does that portend for Rudy Giuliani? Now he's vulnerable in legal debt. Doesn't look like he's getting a lot of love financially or uh, morally from Donald Trump. It's not helping him raise any money. What happens to Giuliani? Does he flip on Trump? I mean, he says he's not. Of course, everyone says they're not until right. they do, right? So, you know, I don't know. I mean, Donald Trump is, is the reason for Rudy Giuliani's relevance. He sort of brought him back from the abyss, you know, after his, you know, presidential loss in 2008. So, I mean, he just, there's a loyalty there that's kind of hard to even fathom. When you think about the moment that it all went south for uh, Rudy Giuliani, or perhaps even specifically Rudy Giuliani with the relationship with Trump, can you can you point to it? Is there a moment where, based on your reporting, you you can see that relationship uh, nosedive? Yeah, I mean, I think it was. I mean, the, I mean, <laughs> it, it sort of ended at the beginning, right? right? I mean, you know, he was kind of a reluctant Trump supporter in 2015, as a lot of people were. But then there was just nobody else returning Rudy's phone calls. You know, he was kind of losing relevance at the time and. Trump was like more than his meal ticket. He was his companion, his supporter. You know, the only way he was able to stay in the game kind of thing. Why um, why do what he is doing now, Giuliani? Is, is it simply for the money, the show that he's hosting and the balance of nature uh, vitamins that he is promoting? I think he just can't help it. You know, right. like Rudy had this radio show, if you remember, mm -hmm. but back when he was mayor where like people would call in and he would yell at them about their ferret 
pets or whatever else. <laughs> right. So this is kind of like a natural element for him. I mean, he loves this stuff. Just put him in front of a microphone and a camera. I mean, he'll just talk all night kind of thing. I think he just can't stop himself. Um, I have to ask you about some other uh, New York City news, and that is of the current uh, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, who has found himself in a little bit of a legal pickle, to say the least, um, in not the investigation, the FBI now seizing his phones, part of an investigation uh, into possible wrongdoings by his uh, um, camp, one of his campaign staffers. What can you tell us about that? I mean, I mean it, it's just I, such a significant development. It's a remarkable story. I mean, you know, we, we had been told earlier in the week that they were cooperating with federal authorities. That they, were, they had nothing to do with it. Next, when we find out the FBI has sort of surrounded his vehicle, asked his security deal to leave while they seize his phone and, and devices. I mean, we don't know what we're at the beginning of, but we know it does not look good. Yeah, I was going to say, as someone pointed out, um, you know, the lawyer, his lawyer said that he's cooperating with this investigation. But as someone pointed out, it doesn't seem like you're cooperating if the FBI has to come to you in the middle of the street, tell your security detail, step aside and grab your phone because they were afraid that you might be throwing your phone into the river. Unbelievable. I mean, I, you know, we like originally this, the, the original sort of stories about this investigation, it seemed was unclear how the mayor was involved. It right. seemed a little like small potatoes, a straw donor thing. What's this all about anyway? Now it seems really big and we just don't know like what they could be looking for. Yeah, it's going to be one of those uh, cases that we follow very closely. I'm sure you'll have more reporting on it in the coming weeks and months. Uh, David, it's great to see you. Thank you so much. As always, greatly appreciate it. Uh, that is our show for tonight. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, Kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.